Welcome to News for CHROs, This Week in HR Policy, brought to you by HR Policy Association, the premier group for chief human resource officers and senior HR executives at multinational and U.S. employers. My name is Henry Eichelberg, and I'm the chief operating officer of the association, and this podcast will provide listeners with every single significant human resources, public policy, and key best practice development each week. All right. So for this week in HR policy for the week of June 2nd, 2023, we'll talk about a webinar we hosted on the workplace implications of the upcoming Supreme Court affirmative action rulings. We'll talk about a new center on executive compensation guide on selecting an independent compensation consultant. We'll cover a recent blog we published on the Latino education gap and the implications for employers. We'll detail NLRB general counsel's Jennifer Abruzzo's continued campaign against employment practices with her recent push to seek non-compete agreement restrictions. We'll also talk about new global HR leader responsibilities on the topic of human rights and another Supreme Court decision permitting employer recovery of strike-related property damage. Finally, we'll get a little information on what this month's job report means and what are the implications. Kicking us off this week is a webinar recap by the association's Greg Hoff. HR policy members explore workplace implications of the upcoming Supreme Court affirmative action cases. The webinar, which took place this week, focused on the upcoming Harvard and UNC affirmative action cases and how those cases could impact DE&I programs in the employment context. During the webinar, our wonderful panelists urged companies to begin preparing internal and external communication strategies addressing the decisions and noted that while direct legal impact on DEI in the employment context may be limited, because remember, this is a case focusing on affirmative action and college decisions, cases, although not on point, will still increase scrutiny of employer DEI initiatives and policies in general. Among our panelists were several HR policy members and legal experts, including Nadine Red Blackburn, the senior principal of United Minds, Kiera Fernandez, SVP of HR and chief DNI officer of Target, David Fortney, the co-founder of Fortney and Scott LLC. The panel was moderated by Jackie Welch, the chair of HR Policy's Council on Inclusion and Diversity and the executive vice president and CHRO of the New York Times Company. Greg Hoff, the Associate Counsel Director of Labor and Employment Policy for the association, also provided legal and political context. So after a discussion of the legal overview of the Supreme Court cases for Harvard and UNC and how it could possibly connect to the use of race in employment decisions, the panelists really turned their focus on helping companies prepare their responses. During the discussion, they stressed that employers should begin strategizing internal and external communications in response to the decision, which are expected sometimes in June. According to Ms. Blackburn, now is the time to take a look at all your public materials with an eye to detail to make sure it is accurate to the letter of the law. It is equally important to identify why why your company is engaging in these DEI activities. She also encouraged all companies to talk with employees about the value of DEI and how it has specifically benefited the company. Mr. Fortney noted that while the current cases, like I said before, won't have any direct legal impact on the employment context, employment DEI programs will likely receive increased scrutiny, and he expects several lawsuits challenging aspirational goals and other DEI initiatives to move forward, and several already pending. According to Mr. Fortney, 
the cases will raise this broader societal discussion and incentivize shareholder actions, employee discussions, and reverse discrimination lawsuits. Ms. Fernandez noted that there is an extremely important role for chief human resource officers to play in conversations with employees to ensure that company actions in the DEI space and the responses to the Supreme Court cases remain aligned with the company's overall general goals and values. Ms. Fernandez noted that most conflict comes from external communications, not communications made internally, which creates this bifurcation effect for employees. So what's the outlook? The decisions in the two cases are expected to be issued sometime in June. HR Policy will be hosting a follow-up webinar on July 10th to discuss the aftermath, including what the decisions could mean in the near and long-term for employer DEI initiatives and commitments. There's more registration information within the written story available on our website. And that's all for that story. The next story we have, the Center on Executive Compensation releases the CHRO Guide to Selecting an Independent Compensation Consultant by HR Policy's Megan Wolf. As the Compensation Committee takes on increased responsibility for overseeing company compensation plans, pay governance, and human capital policies, the selection of a compensation consultant is of paramount importance. In response... HR Policy's Center on Executive Compensation published a new thought leadership piece to help CHROs navigate the selection process for an independent compensation consultant. The Center's CHRO Guide to Selecting an Independent Compensation Consultant is co-authored by the Center's Ani Wong, the President and CEO, and Rich Flourish, Senior Strategic Advisor. The guide is based on interviews with 13 world-class compensation committee chairs, CHROs, and compensation consultants across multiple sectors. The guide is a curated collection of insights, tips, and tools for successfully working through the selection process. This valuable resource explores the factors that often trigger a consultant search as well as tips for ensuring a well-orchestrated evaluation process and advice on gaining alignment on the key evaluation criteria. Additional tools such as sample compensation consultant RFP, sample questions for reference checking, and a compensation consultant performance evaluation are included in the guide. The center also hosted a webinar on May 31st featuring Tracy Keogh, the chief people officer and growth partner at Great Hill Partners, and Blair Jones, the managing director of Semler Bossy Consulting Group, who were both interviewed for the guide. During the webinar, we reviewed findings from our recent center survey on compensation consultant practices and discussed practical ideas for how CHRO and compensation committee chairs can and collaborate to ensure the search is efficient, effective, and results in finding a consultant who works as a collaborative partner with both the committee and management. Ms. Jones recommended that the CHRO clarify the chair's expectations of the consultant's role and their desired working style. Together, they can prioritize the attributes that are most important to the organization. These top priorities can help shape specific questions that are asked during the evaluation process and better assess the consultant's fit for the organization's needs. The panelists shared their suggestions for providing performance feedback to consultants, and Ms. Keogh emphasized the importance of ongoing feedback. As a CHRO, she's held debriefs after each committee meeting, and the chair also provided formal feedback on an annual basis. With regard to onboarding new consultants, Ms. Jones outlined helpful steps for onboarding, which included providing three years of committee book content, in-person working sessions with the CHRO and the chair to ask questions and gain insights into the committee dynamics, 
as well as private meetings with stakeholders. Ms. Keogh indicated that interviews with business leaders have been extremely helpful for sharing context and to understand the history of how compensation has been perceived. The Center's Guide is available to all HR Policy Association members on our website. We hope it's a useful framework for a rapidly developing area, and we look forward to your comments and input. And that's the wrap of this story. Next up, we have the Latino Education Gap Implications for Employers by the Association's Shelley Carlin. A blog post this week by Mike Madrid, co-founder of the Lincoln Project and national political consultant, as well as HR Policy's Shelley Carlin, explores the historic demographic changes occurring in the United States resulting from the growing Latino population, as well as the significant implications on the workforce. Latinos rank the lowest in educational achievement among ethnic and racial groups, driving substantial need for additional investment in education programs. The association's Latino Worker Project is researching this growing segment of the workforce and is planning to provide companies with key insights into this population. You can find a link to the blog post in the podcast page for this episode, as well as on our website. Next up, we have NLRB General Counsel continues campaign against employment practices, seeks non-compete agreement restrictions by HR Policy's Greg Hoff. This week, National Labor Relations Board General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo expanded her pro-labor crusade, issuing a memo claiming that non-compete agreements violate federal law, except in limited circumstances. The memo itself has no legal effect, and it will be up to the board to eventually decide whether to adopt Abruzzo's opinion as law. Abruzzo's memo claims that non-compete agreements chill employee rights to concerted activity, i.e. organizing, protesting working conditions, etc., because if employees are fired for exercising such rights, they will feel that they have greater difficulty replacing their lost income as a result of the non-compete. The memo specifically claims that non-compete agreements render employees afraid to threaten to resign or work elsewhere. These are actions that Abruzzo, perhaps questionably, considers explicitly protected by the National Labor Relations Act, among other actions. Per the memo, non-compete agreements are only lawful under the NLRA where they are narrowly tailored to address special circumstances justifying the infringement on employee rights. The memo itself is not legally binding and merely expresses the general counsel's opinion as articulated in the cases before the board. It will be up to the board to decide, in such cases, whether to adopt Abruzzo's opinion and establish that non-compete agreements generally violate the National Labor Relations Act, even if the board were to agree with Abruzzo. Any resulting non-compete ban would be far smaller in scope than the FTC's proposed rule. The NLRA only applies to non-supervisory employees, i.e. employees without management-type authority. Thus, non-compete agreements would still be acceptable for executive-level employees, although perhaps not for certain employees with access to trade secrets. The memo might be Abruzzo's most brazen attack yet on long-established employment practices, all conducted under the guise of protecting employee rights under federal labor law. Tying rights to protest working conditions to non-compete agreements requires quite a logical and legal leap. For one, non-compete agreements govern post-employment conduct and therefore explicitly do not cover the employee's current working conditions or concerted activity regarding the same. As with severance agreements, workplace rules, workplace monitoring, and other issues Abruzzo has commented on, Abruzzo is substituting her own judgment in place of the reasonable employee, in the beginning with the assumption that such employer actions or policies are inherently designed, implemented, or enforced to restrict employment rights under the federal labor laws. 
as with severance agreements, workplace rules, workplace monitoring, and the other issues Abruzzo has commented on, Abruzzo is substituting her own judgment in place of the reasonable employee standard in the beginning with the assumption that employer actions or policies are inherently designed, implemented, or enforced to restrict employee rights under federal labor law. So what's the outlook here? Once again, General Counsel Abruzzo is attempting to stretch federal labor law beyond any interpretations we have seen before, even under previous Democrat-majority boards. Whether or not the board follows her on such a crusade remains to be seen. It has been hesitant in some cases to adopt Abruzzo's more extreme positions. Regardless, the memo provides yet another example of the lengths in which Abruzzo is attempting to transform labor law into overwhelming favor of unions and workers. Make sure you join us this fall at our Washington Policy Conference in Washington, D.C., where General Counsel Abruzzo will be speaking and will discuss these issues and other key labor issues. Next up, by HR Policy Global's Wen Chao Dong, we have new responsibilities for global HR leaders on business and human rights. New supply and chain laws in Germany and beyond are set to expand corporate human rights due diligence responsibilities beyond the traditional child and forced labor to cover what we consider traditional labor and employment rights. The extended scope of required supply chain due diligence creates significant new pressures on global HR professionals. For the past decade, supply chain legislation has focused on forced and child labor, including the California Transparency and Supply Chain Act and the recent Fight Against Forced Labor and Child Labor and Supply Chains Act in Canada. Critics argue supply chain transparency laws lead to superficial reporting focused on processes rather than outcome. Further, laws fail to rule out forced labor and exploitation from prevailing business models. Legislators globally generally agree that the lack of accountability and enforcement measures in those rules result in little progress in meaningfully addressing human rights and labor rights violations. However, a proposed European Union directive on corporate sustainability due diligence will involve evaluation of working environments within the entire value chain. New and contemplated supply chain due diligence measures differ significantly from past measures by requiring due diligence checks over what may be considered traditional labor and employment law rights. The recently passed German law, for example, identifies the following elements as human rights and thus requires the requisite coverage in the company's due diligence analysis, reporting, and remediation. What are those elements? One is workplace safety, then working conditions, freedom of association, employment discrimination, and wage discrimination. The new German law requires organizations to monitor and act on violations within their own operations, as well as to support their direct suppliers in preventing risks, regardless of whether the activity was performed in Germany or abroad. Further, if an organization becomes aware of possible violations of human rights by one of its indirect suppliers, an immediate risk analysis of the possible violations must be conducted. Both changes will have a critical impact on global supply chain management, especially for companies with a heavily diversified supplier pool. The ability to receive and record accurate data and required metrics from the myriad of internal and third-party suppliers will make compliance a major challenge. Add an additional layer of complexity. In North America, new legislation targets human rights in the supply chain. For example, the U.S.'s Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, though only focused on forced labor, introduced a rebuttable presumption that goods from the Xinjiang region in China are the product of forced labor and are therefore banned. Further, the U.S. recently pressured Vietnam to stop importing products from Xinjiang, 
thus demonstrating a secondary country impact of such measures. So what's the outlook here? As governments, especially the European Union, begin demanding more accountability from companies through human rights and labor legislation, multinational companies will increasingly turn to their HR leaders for help. HR Policy Global is hosting a panel discussion on July 12th on this topic and invites you and your teams to participate. Next up, we have the Supreme Court Permits Employer Recovery of Strike-Related Property Damage by the Association's Greg Hoff. This week, the Supreme Court issued a decision holding that employer recovery for a union's intentional damage to employer property was not preempted by federal law. While the union argued that damages resulted from strike activity protected by federal law, the Supreme Court disagreed and held that intentional damage done to employer property was not protected by the National Labor Relations Act. By way of background, the employer operated a concrete delivery service using trucks that mixed the concrete within the truck itself to prevent it from hardening. Following the expiration of a collective bargaining agreement between the employer and its employees' union, the union conducted a work stoppage, quote, on the morning it knew the company was in the midst of mixing a substantial amount of concrete, end quote, for deliveries. The union directed employees to intentionally interfere with this process, with the results that large amounts of concrete were also hardened to the point of becoming useless, which also significantly damaged employer trucks in the process. The employer sued the union in state court for recovery of such damage. The National Labor Relations Act generally preempts state law when the two even possibly conflict. The union in this case argued that the employer's state law claim was thus preempted by the NLRA and the damages incurred were the result of a strike-protected activity by the NLRA. The Washington Supreme Court agreed, and the employer subsequently appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. However, in an 8-to-1 decision, the Supreme Court found that the union executed the strike in a manner designed to achieve the destruction of the employer property. The court held that such intentional damages and the lack of steps taken to mitigate such damages render the activity unprotected under the NLRA. Accordingly, the Supreme Court held that the employer could recover the damages under state law without being preempted by the NLRA. So what's the outlook in this case? The case is notable in that it places a clear limit on the extent to which unions can destroy employer property through strike activity while retaining the protection of the NLRA, and conversely empowers employers to recover damages for poor activity beyond that limit. Next up, we have job growth and openings increase, but cracks begin to appear by HR Policy's Mark Wilson. Employers added 339,000 jobs and job openings increased by almost 360,000 in April, but the unemployment rate increased from 3.4% to 3.7%. couple important notes, the African-American unemployment rate jumped to 5.6%, but monthly numbers can jump around in the BLS household survey, and the record low last month may have been a statistical fluke. Professional and business services added 64,000 jobs, healthcare 52,000 jobs, state and local government 50,000 jobs, leisure and hospitality 48, private education services just over 22,000, and social assistance just over 22,000. There was very little job growth in all other major industry groups. 
With regard to pay gains, they've slowed a bit further. The average hourly earnings were up 4.3% in May from a year ago, but down from the 5.9% wage gain we saw in March 2022. Job openings rose, but only in four industries, construction, retail, trade, transportation, and warehousing, as well as healthcare slash social assistance. So what's the outlook here? The job market has enough momentum to sustain consumer spending and the economy into the fall. Travel and vacation-related hiring appears to be re-accelerating going into the summer, and high levels of immigration appear to be impacting job gains in the social assistance industry and state and local governments. And that's it. Thanks for listening to News for CHROs, This Week in HR Policy. I'm Henry Eichelberg with HR Policy Association, the premier trade association for chief human resource officers and senior HR executives. For more information about the association, visit our website at www.hrpolicy.org. And we'll see you next week for the next News for CHROs.